Sales Tuners, Episode 7, Peter Dunn, Personal Finance Expert at Pete the Planner. Do you remember specifically the feeling you had when you figured out that as a good salesperson, you can create money? This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown. The only weekly show where we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that get sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody hands go up. It's time, it's time, it's time. It's Sales Sooners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Earl Nightingale, who said, never give up on a dream just because of the time it will take to accomplish it. The time will pass anyway. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Peter Dunn, also known as Pete the Planner. We're going to spend the entire episode talking about money, uh, the belief system behind it, as well as how to handle the income fluctuations of a commission-based sales role. Pete is an award-winning comedian and financial mind. He's a USA Today columnist and author of 10 books, including The Commissioner, one that we'll talk a bit about today. Pete also hosts the popular radio show, The Pete the Planner Show, and appears regularly on CNN Headline News, Fox News, and Fox Business. And if that's not enough, he's also one of the top four financial broadcasters in the nation. You'll quickly see why I was really excited to interview him. Before we dive in, I want to say a quick thank you to our sponsors. A big thanks goes out to the team at Octa for helping make this podcast possible. We all know that a better sales process creates a better buying experience, and Octa is transforming the way sales documents are created, distributed, and tracked. Check out a demo at Octave.com. That's O-C-T-I-V.com. All right, be sure to check out all the links and show notes at salesooners.com slash Pete the Planner. But now let's get to the conversation where Pete tells me about the moment he realized being a financial planner actually meant he was a salesman. I, I started in the financial uh, services industry back in 1998 as an intern. I knew I wanted to stay in that world. Quickly discovered that means I'm in sales. <laughs> sure. Hey, I want to be a financial planner. Oh, you're in sales. So I, I figured that out and then transitioned it to what I wanted to be now, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about. Uh, in the interim, what I like to do, uh, I find since I travel a lot, the perfect night for me is sitting in my chair, which because that's the age I am now, I have a chair at home and just having a bottle of wine with my wife watching terrible things on Netflix. That's what I enjoy, Jim. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I, I'm, I am glad that you learned at an early age that you were actually in sales and that the fact that you knew anything about money didn't matter at that point. Yeah. So I, I think that's fascinating in any industry if you're a technician and you enjoy uh, if you the dental field, or if you enjoy, you know, uh, the financial world, the reality is, in order to create revenue for whatever business you're in, you better know how to sell. And I think it's the people that embrace that that succeed, and the people that are in complete denial that fail and blame someone else. Sure, sure. So you know, I, I like to ask people this, but like, let's look specifically at that. Uh, talk to me about that experience of when you realized that it was sales that you were doing, and not just financial planning. Well, the fact that I was in the financial world at 22, ran out of college, and I expected people to trust what I had to say, and I expected them to believe me that I knew anything, that in itself is a sale. I mean, if you really are, are completely honest, someone who's 22 knows nothing about money, nothing. And I knew nothing about money. I knew <laughs> specific things about specific products, and my only way to survive were to find the right fit uh, the right people for those products. Uh, and of course, it's a, it's a happy 
sort of a very thin, happy line there of finding the right people for your products or finding the product that fits everyone. And and that gets into sales ethics a little bit, I would assume as well. There we go. Well, so you had to have been a little bit successful. You've made it uh, to today. So uh, bring me up to speed. Tell me today what your sales process looked like and, and, and how does someone buy from you again in today's world? Yeah. So uh, about 2005, I discovered that people in the financial, everyone in the world, uh, in terms of their financial lives, um, they don't need products. They just need to understand money. And, and people, no matter their education level or income level, they struggle to understand very basic concepts of how money works. And uh, so when, when I made that discovery, the very first thing that popped out at me was, well, how do I make a living selling that idea? Um, and, and people exist in that space and they sell to the business to consumer channel. But at the time, I didn't think that made sense for what I was trying to accomplish. So um, I, in 2008, got into this idea of financial wellness where it is delivered, this whole concept of, understand behavior it was delivered in the workplace. Therefore, it's a business to business sale, mm-hmm. as opposed to a business to consumer sale. And I decided to build a personal brand that consumers can, uh, it, it, that resonates with consumers. But then it's their employers that write the checks. And so that's how our business is structured. Uh, my entire business is probably 95% business to business revenue, and a very fast growing business to consumer channel. Uh, that I hope within the next two years matches it. Yeah. Now, so again, what we talked about at the top of the uh, the show here, we look at three different segments of this. So the behaviors, the attitude, and the technique that allow you to be uh, successful. So as we look now more into the behaviors, um, what does a typical week look like for you? How are you doing the sales behaviors uh, that you need to do? The, I, content marketing is very important in my business. Um, and, and I say that knowing that the word content's ridiculous. Uh, because very early on, I, I, I read something about content marketing. This is 2005-ish. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to give my perspective on this concept that exists. And therefore, I'm a blogger and this is content marketing. And, you know, it had some legs back in 2005. But nowadays, I mean, to be honest with you, a lot of content marketing, unless it's authentic uh, thought leadership, is garbage. And, and so I where I was a reluctant amateur writer in 05, probably through 08, probably longer than that. (laughs) um, I've now gotten to a point where my writing is the driving force behind our sales efforts. Because, and and it's strange to say this, but salespeople are comfortable with this sort of bravado. I feel like I have the, I'm the best financial writer in the country. I I feel like I can get really difficult concepts across in in a really conversational way. I'm a weekly columnist for USA Today. Um, you know, as a writer of uh, the author of 10 books, I've just written so much that I, I know how to write. And I think uh, because our, our content, I just called it that, is conversational, <laughs> it, it, uh, it really helps because we're not trying to sell people things they've always known. We're trying to sell people on the idea that they just don't know how to manage their behavior. And it, that's the difference between good financial information, in my opinion, and bad financial information. It makes a lot of sense. And I've read several of your books and, uh, you know, you're right in everything you say, having that conversational tone and breaking down those concepts into things that, you know, even us salespeople can understand uh, makes it uh, very beneficial. But, but if you think about it, if the financial world was as successful as they claim to be, the financial planning world, would there be all the financial disasters that exist today in, in, in households across the country? And the answer is, 
No. I mean, the smartest financiers on this planet cannot crack a behavior issue. And so that's why there is a market for someone like me who understands the problem to go out to help people and to responsibly sell into that marketplace. One of the things that you know I do want to talk about when we get to the attitude section is just the attitude about money. I think that's a self-limiting behavior of, of everyone, but specifically salespeople. Um, but I'll, I'll hold off on that for just a little bit here. Um, when you are, uh, you know, so you're using your content, and I'm not going to call it content marketing, but you're okay. using your content uh, to produce opportunities for you. But how do you open up a conversation uh, with a new prospect? Well, we have a couple different channels within our organization. We license our content to large financial institutions so that their financial advisors can leverage the content to create their own revenue and sales. So that's one of our channels is content licensing. That took a while to figure out. And then we do um, what we call curriculum, where we package our content together and um, distribute it to end users. For instance, you've got the ABC company, whatever, that's a made up company. Probably not a made up company, but you know what I mean. Sure. Uh, what are we going to call Acme? What are we going <laughs> to call we'll, we'll JV Industries? Today. And you've got 10,000 employees. And uh, by the nature of statistics, 85% of them are financial disasters. Um, we are, our curriculum, whether it be e-learning, e-books, webinars, live presentations, email campaigns, email challenges, we package these together and distribute them to those companies to improve uh, financial wellness, to decrease financial stress. Uh, and so that's an, another one of our sales channels. Now, but I would assume that these companies all think they, they have all this information, right? <laughs> they don't need you, right? You're, you're a nice to have, not a need to have. Uh, talk to me about what that sales process looks like. Yeah, it's tough because the reality is the CEO struggles with money as much as the mailroom clerk, and no one wants to hear that. I, when I just said that, someone listening to this right now, JB, said, that's BS, right? There's no way. Trust me when I tell you, though, it's the same thing. Um, in fact, I'm not giving you names, of course, but the CEO of a very powerful company in the Midwest was a client of ours, their, their organization. And we, at the time, had these sessions called Ask Pete the Planner Sessions, where I just post up in a conference room, and for 10 hours, people come at me every 15 minutes, and we do what we can to fix their stuff. So the CEO came into a session and dumped uh, their financial life on me, and it was as bad as I've ever seen, despite wow. the fact that they made over $1.6 million a year. And so if you can get the C-suite level folks or the HR managers to understand that in order to accomplish their financial goals, I don't get into the word dreams too much, by the way, uh, their financial goals, then um, they're going to need behavior modification, which sounds like there's going to be diodes or something attached to people's. It's not painful, though. No, it's not. Too, <laughs> it actually is pretty painful. Uh, and, and so it's, it's, it's getting a real conversation with people. And the fact that I, I believe it and live it, um, I'm not a hypocrite. What I say financially is what I do. Mm -hmm. I think that comes through in an authentic way. Now, as we have people in our sales force, I work for our organization. Sure, it's a little more challenging as they're trying to deliver someone else's message. But the reality of that, Jim, is I used to deliver someone else's message and I did a pretty good job at it, mm -hmm. right? So you can't always make the excuse of, well, I'm selling someone else's stuff. I owned the stuff I sold when I sold someone else's stuff. You, you got to take ownership of it. And I think that's an important lesson for anybody. Well, I think it's very valuable. And uh, I, was, I was shaking my head, nodding it here as you said that, because it, you know, we're, we're all the same. We, we have different problems, but the problems may just have more zeros on them. But at the end of the day, like I said, 
we all have those same challenges. Yeah, in our industry, you know, finding the pain that exists for a lack of financial wellness and, and it, to get into specifics because it's just sort of interesting. 11% of the American population has a garnishment on their wages. And so if we can decrease garnishments by getting people to be more financially responsible, that's less time the HR folks are, are spending uh, d dealing with those garnishments as well as people run from garnishments they constantly change jobs so that their wages don't get garnished. So then you've got your saving on training costs because you constantly have to train a new workforce. You've got financial presenteeism. That's where you're physically at work, but not mentally there. And then we've got all these sorts of things. And uh, ultimately, our very subversive yet transparent plan is to get more money in retirement plans. And we can measure that. We can say, what's your contribution level of your employees? And we can say, this is good, bad, or otherwise. And here's why it needs to go up, and here's why it matters. Yeah. That is a, that that part's a unique KPI that uh, I don't think I've ever heard of in the sales process. So, who who are you selling to, Pete? Who is your, um, I guess, target uh, buyer inside of an organization? The HR director uh, or VP of HR, the top person within HR. Every structure is different. Uh, we interact a lot with CFOs, which that's a weird conversation sure. because. Um, Jim, as you know, uh, CFOs understand aspects of money better than anyone in our population, yet they don't understand other people's challenges with money. They are not empathetic to your challenges with money because they're in disbelief that you don't understand what they understand. That is not a cut on them. In fact, that is just one of the qualities they happen to have uh, that is unique. Uh, and then we also end up selling to financial service companies, marketing, and sales departments when we license our curriculum because we're helping them deliver their message, and that in itself is marketing. Okay. Gotcha. Pito, uh, talk to me a little bit about um, a habit that you do on a, on a daily basis, something you have to do every single day that helps you attain uh, your level of success. Look at that for the million dollar question. <laughs> um, I like to answer emails from people all over the country. Um, a big part of the reason I got into to what I do now is there was not a really good outlet to ask a, a, a hard, awkward question without someone trying to sell you something. And so I still dig in every day, maybe 10 or 20 emails, uh, which unfortunately doesn't answer all of the emails from coming in from people. But uh, maybe that's a good problem to have. I don't know. It still <laughs> seems like I'm disappointing people. Uh, but I answer emails or tweets from people every day and just try to answer questions. And in fact, some days I'll turn it into what we call open phones around here, where I let people schedule 15 minutes on a random day. I talked to 40 or 50 people just last week um, from all around the country, 15 minutes at a time. And it is an earth shattering day. It's a wonderful day. It's an exhausting day. And every time I do that, I learn more about money and human nature and behavior than any day before. And, I, and so, you know, I guess that my answer, a very long answer to a very short and meaningful question is, uh, I make sure I'm interacting with people with real problems. Yeah, I mean, that's that's how you're filling their empathy, or that's how you're getting the empathy uh, for them and, and realizing that uh, however many books you write, right, it's not solving the problem, right? Immediately, they still have to be continuously educated and pushed down that path, and there's going to be more people having new problems every single day. So, And here's the secret. I don't know if I've told anyone this, but here's the secret uh, to all of that for me. When I have something that doesn't go the way I want in the course of my business and my life, and I, I, I feel as though I'm going to wallow in my own self-pity, 
I immediately schedule an outward activity where it forces me to focus on the problems of others. Hmm. And so I've done this over the last couple of years and it really shakes you and just says, man, w- wake up, wake up. Little disappointments. I mean, here's a silly one. So I, I did some segments for Good Morning America recently. And here's what you learn about national morning television. Uh, it's completely unpredictable when you're going to air and when you're not going to air and what bumps you and what doesn't bump you. Well, I got bumped by cats. <laughs> a 30-year Broadway musical bumped me from the Good Morning America a couple of weeks ago or whatever. And and I was just sort of like sideways about that. I was like, what is going on? Cat- I got bumped by cats, Jim. Right? And so I was like, oh, this stinks. And then so I found myself feeling sorry for myself, which is a complete waste of time. And so uh, in the second I feel that ping, I schedule sort of an outward activity that forces me to fix someone else's BS. Uh, and, and that's a good strategy for me. I, I love it. And, and I think that as you start talking about other people's BS, that's going to move us right into the attitude, right? Like uh, the attitudes that people have can be either self-limiting or that can be their abundance mentality of seeing that the world is theirs for the taking. Um, talk about that a little bit. Like how does that uh, apply to what you were talking about saying? Yeah, so there's two sides to abundance, right? Um, and, and, and it's important to understand both sides. Number one, I, I do believe I'm a capitalist, right? So I believe in the abundance mentality of there's enough out there for everyone. You just got to know how to get it. And, um, and be willing to go get it. Oh, that's, a, that, that's sort of a prerequisite, by the yeah. way, of course. Uh, but the other side of that abundance mentality is, well, there always will be more, which is a slightly bad way to think of abundance um so one of my dad's best friends had the saying that was you can't put a price on a good time and my dad would unfurrow that phrase when we'd be on a family vacation do something like parasailing or something silly on a vacation as we're teenagers and i this phrase sticks in my head you can't put a price on a good time. You can't put a price on a good time. And I've heard iterations of this in my professional career that people try to justify their BS with. And Jim, I've just I've discovered that that's a crooked abundance mentality that's wrong and damaging. Money is finite. You're going to earn a finite amount of money in your career. You're going to have a um, – the question is, are you going to have a finite number of expenses? Um, and so the abundance mentality can be dangerous. I think it can lead to terrible financial decisions. I keep less than a hundred bucks in my checking account the day before I get paid because if I have too much money in there, I'll have an abundance mentality and I'll say, well, there's plenty, so spend it. So even uh, scarcity should be leveraged appropriately in someone's financial life. Hmm. Uh, you've actually helped me with that in the past before. We've had those conversations. So You pushed back a little bit. I, of course. I think that's what, <laughs> that's, the, that's what you do. Any good salesperson is going to do that. So. Yeah. Um, Pete, you, um, I don't know where I want to go with this. I don't know if I want to go the commissioner out yet, or if I want to go to, uh, uh, a recent mentality change like you I think you have, and that's where I'm going to go. Um, so you had talked to me in the past about, you know, not wanting to help people get rich. Yeah. That wasn't your path. It wasn't nope. your mission. Uh, but you've made a, a mental change lately and now you're on a mission to make people millionaires. What triggered that? And, and, and what are you doing? Well, right now, as you ask the question, I'm thinking, how can I answer this as authentically as possible without using the profanity that's necessary? Um, I, I just wanted to stop beating around the bush. The reason I want people to be resourceful with their money is not for the sake of resourcefulness. It gets you nowhere. The, the, the point of resourcefulness is to allow you to build wealth. 
And I think the entire financial services industry is letting people off the hook. Hmm. They're saying, save for the future. That's such an empty phrase, man. It's an idea. It's not a goal. Get out of debt. Okay, get, tell me more. And so for me, I fixated on this idea of trying to help as many people become millionaires as possible, which when I say that, even to this day, six months after changing my language, that sounds so scammy. <laughs> like, I feel like, Jim, I'm going to let you pick one of the protein shakes that you're going to be forced to shell, share uh, out of the closet or sell out of the closet. But it's, it's just math. And that's what's so foreign about this concept is I'm showing people the day they will become a millionaire. We created this whole thing. It's, it's an app in the app store. You can go and get it. It's called a million dollar plan. It's free. Sound like I was selling it to you. Almost. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's a good plug, though. I like it. Thank you. I slipped it in. And, and so uh, you take a million-dollar plan, you find out the day you're going to be a millionaire. My job is we gamify the process of moving that day up. And the reality is you have to be a millionaire to retire. If you're in your 20s, 30s, or 40s, you will not retire successfully without being a millionaire. And I, I guess I just got sick of beating around the bush because that is reality. And the resourcefulness tact, it just wasn't leading people to that end goal or what? Yeah, so... <laughs> For me, it was uh, my job is to make you resourceful. I, I even wrote a big blog post about, I don't want you to be a millionaire. I, I want you to be resourceful. One, yeah. Well, it's stupid because resourcefulness, it's not a destination, right? It's just like, oh, I'm going to resourcefulness. And no, there has to be a reason. And if we're talking about sales and what sells, the idea of resourcefulness doesn't actually resonate with successful people. Um, there has to be a carrot. And the carrot is a million bucks. And so we, we just decided to escalate our language. And I had a good friend tell me this. He's an advisor of mine. He said, um, anytime you change your language that aggressively, um, you're afraid of what people think of your messaging. Of course. So I've already yeah. disclaimed it two minutes ago. Yeah. And he said, you feel like you're lying to people. But the only person you really have to lie to is to yourself. And here's the lie that you tell you have to tell yourself that you don't care what other people think about your messaging. Because the reality is, Jim, I really care yeah, absolutely. if people think I'm a crook. But I have to lie to myself to tell myself I don't care about that so that the messaging can get through. Because don't get me wrong, if I post a Facebook video about being a millionaire and I know someone's watching it going, what is this? This guy's ridiculous. The lie is I have to tell myself I don't care about that because obviously anyone would care about that. Well, the flip side of that, though, you write some very rational and uh, truthful pieces in the USA Today, <laughs> and you get uh, uh, plenty of emailers. Death threats. And also <laughs> the guy that said he wants to meet me in the streets. I don't even, what would I do? <laughs> I'm not a former pro wrestler. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. That's hilarious. <laughs> Uh, Pete, I want to talk a little bit about your book, uh, The Commissioner. It's uh, it's a guide to surviving and thriving on a commission income. Uh, I'm pretty sure that everybody on this podcast, uh, you know, they're they're on some some amount of commission, whether it's all commission, base plus. Uh, if they're the entrepreneur, then they only eat what they kill. Yep. Where did the uh, the idea behind that book come from? I was in the financial services industry, and all my colleagues were terrible with money. And now, hold on a second. You just said you were in the financial services industry. Yeah. People selling financial services and all your colleagues were terrible with money. Yes, that's a big blanket statement and I stand by it. Uh, that we were asking people every day to accomplish audacious goals and people in the industry themselves really weren't doing it. And in so much so that we were 100% commission at the time um, that 
you you'd had a good month and and you spent like a sailor on leave, right? And it just stopped making sense. And and it's st- I I started to feel like I was doing math at the closing table, which is really dangerous when you you're in a deal and you start thinking I need this and and so I decided to um, fix two problems. Number one, people that are in sales that say the only thing they don't like is the unsteady pay. Okay, so I try to solve that problem. Number two is I didn't want to make my success and failures about money. Uh, if I missed a deal, I wanted it to be um, that I didn't do something correctly and I didn't want it to be tied to the emotion of struggling financially. So I normalized my pay by creating the salary system, which I now call the commissioner. And it was just a way to levelize your pay so you can focus on being the best at your job and not focus on money. I paid myself the same salary for six years, did, and I would pay myself bonuses, of course. That's sure. the fun part. Uh, and then I've been on the same salary now for the last three years. Regardless of what you bring in. Regardless of what I bring in. And I get a bonus at the end of the year. Yep. But um, I- I'm the only person in my organization who's not received a raise of base salary uh, in the last three years. And I don't think I will give myself a raise because I don't want my lifestyle to creep with my income. I'd rather use my bonuses to accomplish my financial priorities um, because frankly, with for tax reasons, all sorts of other things, to increase my pay for lifestyle reasons is just stupid at this point. Sure. Yeah. Hey, you talk about that lifestyle creep. So uh, a lot of salespeople, yeah. I know myself included, uh, we experience this commission roller coaster. And Heck you, yeah. You've already talked about trying to normalize that, but how do you, uh, you know, put together it like, most people are in debt. How do you put together that debt reduction plan uh, while on a commission and not just splurge on a tropical vacation when you get that $10,000 commission check come in? Let me answer that with a quick question to you. Do you remember specifically the feeling you had when you figured out that as a good salesperson, you can create money? Do you, do you remember in or around the time when you were like, wait a second, if I can master this, I can actually create whatever money I need. Do you, do you remember that? I do. It was early. Me too. And so here's what that leads to. It, it, it led to my early definition of financial success was to make as much money as I wanted to to accomplish my financial goals, which is a really wild goose chase, right? It's just, you'll, you're never satisfied because of creep. That's right. And so then I changed the definition to have as few obligations as possible. And so what that allowed me to do is to wake up every day uh, and to not work because I owe a bunch of people money. It's because I'm, I'm, I'm just able to work. That, that, that money becomes a byproduct of doing what I, what I love, which sounds very Oprah-ish, I admit. Debt to me, especially for salespeople, is an obligation to your past. And if when you're income, when you're busting your hump and you are sweating and you're doing your work, if your income is flowing to your past, to your obligations, you cannot be in the right mental uh, state of mind that you need to be in. And so uh, debt elimination is so important, especially for a salary where you're trying to pay yourself a salary. But what salespeople do, often realtors do this a lot, is they'll yo-yo in and out of debt. Mm-hmm. They'll get a big close, pay it off, rack They're up debt to the next the one. That's right. And so we try to normalize that. Uh, my, my wife's a marathoner, and when she runs a, a marathon, she's got approximately 2,800 calories or so um, to make up over the course of the day over, over her normal calories. She's in a 2,800 calorie deficit. And so she's got some options. She could either A, uh, 
eat 2,800 calories to make up for that. B, eat her normal amount of calories, which means she would technically lose weight. Right. Or if she was trying to lose weight, which she's not, and no, I'm not suggesting my wife needs to lose weight. This got weird. Then she could eat less than her normal calories. And I think when you have a good month as a salesperson, you got three choices. You can either A, spend more because you made more. B, you can spend your normal amount, which will create a surplus. Or C, which I think is the smartest thing to do, is on your best month, spend less. Because then that month becomes all the more powerful than, than it ever was meant to be. And so I personally do that now. When we have a great month here, even though I have the, I'm on the same salary, uh, or I have a big bonus coming at the year end, I will spend less in that month because I, it, it really takes advantage of that, uh, the difference in pay. Uh, your analogy there to weight loss was uh, exceptional. Uh, you've actually written in the past about how uh, weight loss uh, can be financially uh, ruin people as well, just because of you know uh, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah. So you hit on this a little bit as well, but I want to ask it maybe in a different way. You've been doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. How do you sustain high growth, high performance without getting burnt out? Uh, kind of overcoming that you know what have you done for me lately mentality. Uh, a good friend saved my brain a couple years ago when he said the hardest thing in the world isn't to start a business, it's to grow a successful business. And I was going nuts because we were doing well and it was harder and harder and harder to grow um, because we were doing so well. There's just new challenges you never expected. And so hey, burnout was getting closer. And I, I think stepping away and, and, and really going back to what I'm trying to accomplish I wasn't trying to grow a business. I'm trying to change people's financial lives. And I think mm -hmm. in the in the course of running a business, I get so caught up in uh, trying to be better at business. And I had to just step back and say, the reason I'm doing this is to help people financially, which then leads to sort of creative you know, uh, moments and uh, new projects. And anytime I can spur my creativity, it drives our business further. Anytime I get caught in the weeds of running the business, we just roll around in, in miserable conditions. Interesting. You know? Interesting. That's me, though. I mean, I, I'm a creative stuck in a money world, uh, which, which is unusual, I think. No, it, it makes complete sense. I think each of us has to find inside of our own selves what it takes for us to wake up and keep doing that next thing. I think that it's interesting when you when you think about the idea of quotas, right? Yeah, yeah quotas. Uh, let's say you have a high quota. And you, and you kill it. You absolutely kill it. No matter what it is, it's still a limiting behavior because the quota is arbitrary more than likely, right? And so um, if, let's say your quota is $2 million a year and you're at 1.8. Why are you struggling just to get that last $200,000? Why weren't you doing stuff earlier to get to 2.5? It's, it's just arbitrary. In the financial world, you oftentimes start in the life insurance business, and which I, I was in. It's part of the financial planning process. And so... Um, at the company I was at, there was something called the fall life promotion. And that is when you really focused for two months on life insurance sales, specifically as uh, in relation to the other products and services you offered. And so what happened at that company is that that's basically the only time people focused on life insurance. And it became this arbitrary marker of stupidity. And I remember learning it and, and just thinking to myself, well, this is really dumb. Because these people are only basically trying at this point in time or they're trying to close the quarter strong. And I always found that to be ridiculous. And unfortunately, the way 
a lot of management compensation works is they drive you to toward quarter end for their own compensation. So I very quickly uh, became both a favorite and a least favorite of the sales management structure of the organization I worked for because number one, I always hit my goals, but it had nothing to do with their interaction with me because I don't really care what their timing was. I'm not going to hit some stupid promotion. I don't care anything about that. I didn't care about any of the trips. I was doing this for, for different reasons. And I think um, even if you want to take it back to your financial life for a second, think of the arbitrary things people tell you to do that don't matter. Hit your match of your employer's 401k. Well, that's arbitrary and stupid. Right. Put, well, dude, if you put 10% of your pay away, you'll be fine. Oh, really? What, what will that do? It'll do nothing, actually. And so you, you get these arbitrary rules of thumb that mean nothing and become hurtful. And so that's not to suggest you should be all out all the time. But frankly, I just haven't found another way to do it. You're bringing a lot of logic into this conversation. This though, is Pete, where so. I get hate email. Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. Send the hate email. I want to uh, move us into the technique portion. And, you know, technique is just how you do what you do. Um, so I want to talk about going back to how you sell, right? Mm -hmm. How do you actually uncover the real pain or real opportunity uh, when you are selling your services? I think it comes down to being present uh, as, a, as a public speaker, <laughs> a professional speaker. That, that's when my speaking took off is when I knew my stuff, of course. But it's not about your presentation. It's about the audience, and it's about being present and seeing reaction. As a former comedian, you learn to read mm. a crowd and what's funny and what's not. And I think if you're in a sales situation, whether you're on the phone or in person or on the webinar, being present enough to acknowledge the moment that you're in, that it's not always about the future of what you're going to sell, but you're solving whatever problem exists on the call or in the moment. And so sort of my... My best business tip altogether is is to be present. And, and I used to hear people say that, and I had no idea what it meant. Maybe you just figure it out. You figure out that, um, I mean, maybe a good way to think of it, Jim, is you're not always on your phone. Or maybe you're not always um, doing other things that take you out of the moment. Um, and so for me in sales, it's it's let's let's talk about problems and in bounce ideas off of each other, how to, how to fix them. I'm also big into the idea of implementing plans. So I'm going to help you create a plan. And no, you're not going to buy this, but we are going to implement the plan. It just so happens that implementing the plan means you're buying this. Yep. And I've always been that way. And I don't know if that's weird or shady or old school. I don't know what it is, but it works for me. Is that, do you agree this is a problem? Yes, it's a problem. Do you agree this is a solution? Yes, this is the solution. Let's implement the plan. Okay, let's go. And no one ever felt like they bought anything, but we sure as hell solved the plan, a problem. Yep. You know, and that, that's always sort of worked for me and with my sales force now, who does the vast majority of our selling. We, we, we train to that. It's interesting you're talking about that getting to yes mentality is what you're doing there. Mm -hmm. uh, I I just did a podcast myself that took the opposite stance and it's getting to know and, mm -hmm. and uh, they often say that when you try to get people to say yes, you're trying to sell them something and they feel like they got sold. But if you get them to say no, and, and I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes, but it was a, it was from a, a FBI interrogator and it was very interesting how he would do his negotiations to get people to say no. Yeah, you know, I, I do. I have to admit, though, when we have a, a prospect or someone that we're, we have a, a budding relationship with, anymore, I, I'm just as good of, as a no than a yes. Like, mm -hmm. I, I'll take either. And it's and it's just like, just give me a decision. Know, let's just give a decision. <laughs> Tell me now. It, it's okay. Yep. Right? Because I know that if, if I've earned the yes and I can solve your problem, you're going to say yes if I can solve your problem. 
If you've said no, you either don't get it and I didn't do my job, or, or, or B, I can't solve your problem. That's where I'm at confidence-wise now. If you say no to us, it's because we didn't do our job well, and that's on us, not on you. Mm-hmm. And, or the second factor is you truly don't have a problem that needs fixed. And I'm okay with either. So, I mean, because look, who am I going to blame? I'm going to blame you because you don't buy something? Well, that's stupid. It's like in the financial world, people like, uh, I don't save for my kids' college because college is just too expensive. Something will have to change. Okay, so what you're saying is the entire system around you will change so you don't have to. That doesn't make any sense. So I, I like, frankly, just blaming myself because I, I know I have the solution. I like it. Pete, we're going to take a quick break to uh, thank our sponsors, and then we are going to come back and hit the money round. Let's do it. Sales Tuners, Octave has built a sales productivity platform that streamlines the workflow for creating and managing your sales documents. Everything from presentations and quotes to all of your proposals and contracts. They can pull data from your CRM, CPQ, and ERP systems, saving you time and accelerating each sales opportunity. Octave has been around since 2010 and now serves more than 400 organizations. I'm talking global enterprises, guys, like GE and Siemens, national brands like Angie's List and FedEx Office, and even industry innovators like Double Dutch and Lindemood Bell. You've got to check them out. Go to Octave.com. That's O-C-T-I-V.com to learn more. And hey, during your demo, be sure to tell them you heard about them on the Sales Tuners podcast. We are back. And Pete, it is time for the money round. And again, these are just going to be questions that I'm just looking for your first initial reaction. Uh, If you want to go deep into it, go for it, but just hit me with the service stuff. So what's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from being normal to being exceptional? Personal responsibility. Just accepting blame as much as you accept praise. I like it. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you spend the next 30 days doing? Building relationships. And uh, what I'm selling would follow that. Yeah, I, I think developing relationships. Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose? I love to win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not as competitive as I probably want to be. And when someone says they're competitive to me, that means they hate to lose. You can love to win without being competitive. And I don't think I'm actually that competitive. And so I think I love to win is the answer. What's a book that you've read multiple times or always recommend to others and not one of your own? <laughs> I haven't read them. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I love the success principles by Jack Canfield. You know, I, I read it in 2007 and I tripled my revenue that year. And it was a big part of that. And every year that I've read it, Every year that I'm smart enough to read it again, good things happen. So the success principles by Jack Canfield, uh, it just works for me. So I've read it probably three or four times. It's a good one. I've read it a couple of times myself. And uh, Sales Tuners, if you would like to check out uh, the success principles uh, or get any book for free, you can head over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book for your free 30-day trial at Audible. Pete, what's the biggest piece of advice that you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding? I, I was a I was afraid I wasn't working hard enough for a very long time in my career. My dad was a really hard worker, get up at 4 a.m., go to work, get home at 6 p.m. That's what he did. And I was terrified that I did not have his, his work ethic. And it wasn't until I was 28 that I realized that I was just working for someone else and not myself. 
and so th- my takeaway is um, you got to find your motivation. My, my motivation at age 38 now is that my wife gave up her career to stay at home with our kids to, uh, and, and, and some view that as a privilege. I, I, she jumped on a grenade, uh, one, because my kids were very loud, and number two, because she gave up her career. Another person gave up their career so I could do this. That is my motivation. It drives me every day. Uh, it, it's hard to talk about without getting choked up. And uh, so finding your motivation and realize that hard work is great, but unless it's for the right reason, then it's not going to matter. That, that's incredibly powerful. Uh, Pete, If uh, how could someone find you or connect with you if they wanted to follow up after this? Yeah, uh, Pete at uh, PeteThePlanner.com is my email address, which apparently I just gave out. I don't know why. And uh, that was awkward. And Or go to my uh, website, PeteThePlanner.com. Uh, there is, uh, we, we have a special offer for, uh, for your folks. Uh, the, the book, the commissioner's there, the commissioner workbook, and uh, it is written for salespeople, people that are built like salespeople that just don't want to have to worry about money. And so, uh, that's where they can find me. Did uh, I just plug my book? Sorry about that. No, it's totally fine. But Hey, if you do sales tuners want to go over to PeteThePlanner.com, uh, that promo code he's talking about is JB. Put JB in that promo code box and you'll save 25% off anything in the store at PeteThePlanner.com. Pete, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, It's been a a wonderful time, and I just want to say thank you. Thanks. Congrats on the podcast. I'm excited to become a subscriber. Such an incredible conversation today with Pete. I highly recommend uh, you check out the resources he has at PeteThePlanner.com. And don't forget, you can use the promo code JB for a 25% discount on anything there. Uh, I want to get to my top takeaways today. Number one, lifestyle creep. Even when you hit your sales goals and start bringing home large commission checks, be careful not to splurge. Avoid the yo-yo effect and focus on achieving your financial goals by hitting your sales goals. Number two, be present. I'll admit, guys, this one is tough for me as well. While you definitely need to know your stuff, you need to truly be present in the conversations you're having. Know the audience and acknowledge that moment, not just your agenda. And number three, personal responsibility. You are the only one in control of your destiny. Take responsibility for both the wins and the losses, and then learn from the no's in order to better communicate your value. That's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions you'd like me to ask our guest, please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. Be sure to sign up for our email list where we send out expanded content and previews of upcoming guests. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, let's make it rain. Thanks for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And they stay there!